Good evening. This is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with surviving a stroke. Dr. Hammond, what happened to you on Tuesday morning, 28th of February, about two weeks ago? Well, I actually woke up with a serious cramp in my foot and standing up to try and walk out this cramp, which you normally get in a calf muscle, not in your ankle. Um, I don't know if it was directly connected, but as I stood up to try and um, walk out the cramp, I fell over onto my left side and I felt my left side was numb. And as I called out to the Lord, I could hear my speech was slurred and immediately recognized that I was having a stroke from the symptoms that I'd heard. Not that I'd ever seen anyone have it before, but I knew that much. So um, that's about two in the morning. What What do you think led to this? Well, according to the people at the hospital, they say lots of stress accumulated, stress and fatigue can um, aggravate and lead to it. But they do say that the kind of things that normally lead to strokes are things that I'm not at risk for. For example, a lot of drinking of alcohol, much smoking, diabetes, those would be conditions that particularly lend itself to strokes. But they said... Um, High levels of stress are definitely a major part. Then I sort of remember the fact that P.W. Butter at a key time when he was playing a major role in resisting communism, he suffered, they said, a stroke, but then the evidence came out that it wasn't a real stroke. It was a medically induced attempt to um, assassinate him, that he was actually, he was uh, fed something that, that induced a stroke. So that's... P.W. Burton, of course, we knew his daughter was on well, and his son-in-law, who was his bodyguard at the time, did not believe he suffered a real stroke, but something that was uh, induced from the outside to sideline him, to get him out of the way, so that the clerk and other Freemasons, brother bonders, and people pushing for the New World Order could get on with their agenda, which he was an obstacle to. Um, that that uh, leads to <laughs> the question is, do you think something similar happened to you? Or? Well, it's hard to say, but it's not impossible because um, I recovered so fast from this that um, one wonders if it was a normal stroke or if this is something that could be induced from the outside. Certainly, I've had some expressed that possibility. Hmm. Uh, what do we need to know about strokes in general, Dr. Hammond? Well, a, a heart attack is when there's a blood clot um, interfering with the flow of blood into the heart. A stroke is when there's a blood clot preventing movement of blood through the brain. So um, whereas a heart attack attacks the heart, a stroke attacks the brain. Now, according to the MRI, which is this horrible claustrophobia type of tunnel where you go into and they scan you all over, and um, the MRI showed that I had had a blood clot in my right side of my brain, which affects your left side. It's always the opposite side um, of the body. And um, so I definitely suffered a stroke and it was a blood clot in the brain. And um, strokes, of course, very dangerous. And seconds count. They say, you know, time is, is life. You've got to get to the hospital fast. Now, I didn't go to the hospital fast. What I did do was I took an aspirin which my mother being a nurse, I sort of picked up that much. I had some aspirins in my cabin. That um, helps thin the blood and prevents um, collagenation so that you don't get this blood clot. And uh, so it helps to relieve it. 
and it's recommended that's a good first aid, first step. So um, I took this aspirin, but then instead of going straight to the hospital, which is what I should have done, I just went back to bed and tried to sleep it off, which I was told by the doctor was not wise. But they were happy I took the aspirin. So what should one do to avoid a stroke? Well, certainly avoiding alcohol and avoiding cigarettes is a good move. And uh, avoiding salt. He said lots of salt contributes to it. I suppose those can bring about those clots. So um, having a salt-less diet or salt-free diet is, is very helpful. Um, exercise definitely helps. But uh, they said the best thing you need once you've got a stroke is you need lots of rest, which isn't something I particularly do well, but... Um, Certainly getting into the outdoors and having healthy exercise would help. Um, trying to live a less stressful life definitely helps. So being in the suburbs, getting out into nature would help. Being in a rat race in the inner city, of course, would contribute to the likelihood one does get it. I know quite a lot of people who've had strokes, such as my father-in-law, Bill Bathman. He actually had his first stroke when he was on a mission to Romania. But fortunately, he was staying with a medical doctor who recognized the symptoms and Got him treated very quickly. Um, what should one do if one is experiencing a, a stroke? Um, ideally, what should one do? Take an aspirin and get to an emergency uh, ward um, outpatient casualty at any hospital as soon as possible. Preferably someone else driving you, of course. Um, I fortunately had my daughter there to insist on doing the driving because I suppose with my left side not being as well coordinated, I could have easily had a car accident on the way there. So it's good not to drive yourself if you can have someone else to do it. So definitely, as I say, aspirin and get your casualty ASAP. And so after the stroke, when you, you said you, you you took an aspirin, you went to sleep and then you must have woken up. And I mean, so you were f capable of phoning and doing, I mean, so you weren't completely incapable of... No, uh, the left side felt very numb and... My speech was slurred. My coordination on my left was definitely bad. I found myself crashing into books and uh, shelves and anything on the left, any pictures in the wall. So with the left side being a little on the lame side, I tend to be going that way. And um, in fact, uh, I think you do feel a bit confused and disorientated. That's definitely part of it. So... Good to have someone alert if if you do see somebody giving those kind of symptoms to get them to the hospital quick. And if you've got aspirins, take those. There are there are some particularly low dose designed for just this particular thing uh, the, to counteract the heart conditions. Uh, the one I've got is the um, aspirin cardio. So bioaspirin cardio is specifically to help protect the heart and so on from blood clots. Is that has that been prescribed since the stroke? Specifically, yes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, did you have trouble dialing the phone number to get hold of your daughter? Or? No. Well, fortunately, she's in the same home. So, when I was a bit late getting out the door in the morning, she came to check that I was all right and um, could tell from my answer that I wasn't speaking as straight as normal. So she assumed there was a problem and insisted that she drive me. So that was definitely the right thing to do. What happened when you got to the hospital? Well, I must say, bureaucrats do seem to run hospitals these days, so it's, it's a bit of an obstacle course just to get into the hospital, filling out forms and all that. 
but the kind of people in casualty tend to be very uh, highly motivated and well-trained and because they've got to take people coming in from anything from car accident to a heart attack and strokes. And uh, the hospital where I went is the same hospital where I was born, and uh, uh, they were, they've got a very strong stroke section. In fact, they've got an ICU just dealing with strokes and heart attacks. So I'm surrounded by people in much worse conditions, and uh, that gives you perspective too. But um, one of the first things was sending me along for an MRI. Now, the MRI scan is you go into this long tunnel. You don't want to be claustrophobic, and it's, it's extremely noisy, the whole machine. It sounds like some angry, drunken, demonic monkeys banging on the side of this drum the whole time. But um, it's very obnoxious. Some people, I believe, wear earplugs or even have some headphones on because it's so noisy. But um, you go in there and the scan goes, everything, your head, your neck, chest, they after seeing what's going on inside your body. And uh, from that, the radiologist comes out with a report and the doctor analyzes and prescribes what's the next step. So from there, they send me straight to ICU, as in medical ICU. There's surgical ICU and then there's medical ICU. Medical ICU tends to be strokes and heart attacks mainly. And uh, I must say, it's it's one thing to be a visitor at a hospital, and I've done a lot of visiting patients at hospitals, but to be a patient is a very different story. And you understand whether you do a patient because you have to be very patient. There's lots of waiting and different people wanting to test and stick all kinds of monitors on you and drips and sticking needles and sucking blood out of you for different tests. So, of course, taking your blood pressure regularly. But, yes, being in a hospital is quite an experience, and uh, um, I've not been a patient often in my life. So they were very surprised to ask questions and hear things like, no, I never uh, drink alcohol, never smoke, and they were very surprised. They obviously find that's normal. But also when we lost in the hospital, well, as a patient many years ago, and they're also kind of surprised about that, you know. You're in your 60s, you should be coming to hospital regularly kind of thing. So um, I'm glad I didn't fall into any of the, the normal categories. But it's, it's quite an experience, and of course... You get to know the doctors, nurses, and the other patients quite well after a while. What, um, <laughs> talking about the other patients, did you undertake any ministry? Actually, hospitals are a great place to ministry. I had lots of opportunities for interesting discussions with nurses. Doctors are less so because you don't see them as much. And with some other patients, but um, within just a few hours, I had the occupational therapist, neurological therapist, and speech therapist arrive to analyze me, battery of tests. And uh, in fact, that's the highlight of your day when you get the therapist coming past because uh, they engage you in more meaningful conversations. So uh, the speech therapist wanted me to read something. So, you know, you open up your Bible, start to read from the Psalms. That's ideal. All the patients and doctors and nurses around can hear. And, and it's it's good scriptural content, so having your Bible with you when you go to hospital is very important. My first ministry was Hospital Christian Fellowship. Joined him back in 1979, Francis Grimm, the founder of Hospital Christian Fellowship, came past my church to preach, first missionary I ever heard. So I ran forward and volunteered to join his mission, and uh, that was a good move. Now, HCF had the motto, more people pass through the hospitals of the world than through the churches. And therefore, their priority is to 
reach evangelizing disciple, train medical personnel to do evangelism and discipleship on a regular basis. And they've got this ongoing ministry opportunity because, as Francis Grimm also said, communists may close churches, but they cannot close hospitals. And so I found very quickly that one of the board members of Hospital Christian Fellowship was Brother Andrew, as in Andre van der Bale, the Bible smuggler, God smuggler. And uh, he was a regular guest and guest speaker at the devotions at HGF. And, of course, working in a communist world, he realized how strategic it was to minister through hospitals, which the communists can't close. So the medical personnel, who are very valuable, will continue to be able to minister if they're Christians in a hostile environment. So uh, what Francis Grimmel said is, when you're in a hospital, God has your attention. You look in the right direction for the first time. And uh, so hospital ministry is great. When I've visited patients, I found reading the Psalms to them is always a good move. Um, it's probably the most meaningful thing you can do is read scripture and pray with the people. Everyone appreciates that. And uh, as somebody who's just been a patient, I can echo that. In fact, on the first evening I was there, Anthony Stunder came around, um, the chairman of the board of our mission, and he anointed me with oil, read James 5, gave the prayer of faith, and uh, I must say I immediately felt a lot better. And the next day, the occupational therapist, speech therapist, neurological therapist, all announced their amazement at how quickly I was recovering. And when they put out a whole bunch of puzzles for me to fix and solve, and I saw put it together quickly, the OT said, well, that's a record. And they were amazed, and then they made comments, well, there's nothing wrong with your cognitive um, side. Brain's working fine, because normally a stroke's damaged a lot of your brain. And uh, so they were impressed that I, I knew what was going on, recognized my surroundings, had good memory, could answer puzzles and problems, showing that... All the different sides of my brain were, were operating well. And I were surprised also that my speech was more slurred than it was at that time. Um, when walking, I, I showed that I could walk. So I was one of the few patients there that was actually allowed to get up and walk to the bathroom, which was a nice opportunity to stretch your legs. But most of the patients there were not allowed to move at all and were just hooked up to machines. So... Um, I must say, sort of look forward to these occupational therapists coming past because they are engaging your mind and they think and they, they're generally nice people with a nice attitude, sort of like the nurses used to be. Yeah, praise the Lord. That didn't affect your faculties. I mean, as an intellectual, that would be devastating for you. I've, I know some people who can't talk or walk since they had their strokes. So all strokes are serious, but um, I've been very mercifully... Uh, spared the damage that often comes. And that's definitely the answers to prayer. I don't think we appreciate how important it is to be able to pray for people who are sick until we're there. Yeah. But so grateful for those who came past and visited and who prayed. I don't think any patient's going to mind if you come and visit and you read scripture and pray with them. What is the protocol in ICU? How, how, who's allowed to visit? And uh, Well, they do have visiting time. Uh, in the afternoon, there's an hour, and in the evening, there's so after supper, they have most visitors. Sometimes they limit the evening to only families. 
but uh, family and friends are always welcome. They try to limit only one person visiting per bed so as not to overwhelm the person. Mm, mm, mm. And they try and discourage children under 12 from coming because that apparently can be quite stressful. Yeah. I remember taking my younger children to the hospital when my mother was sick and immediately started operating all the switches to make the bed go up and down and, you know, jackknife and things like that. And I could see how children could... Uh, cause a lot of havoc in the ICU. There's lots of things to push and disconnect and so on. But um, did anyone witness Anthony Stander anointing you with oil? Uh, yes, no, there were quite a few. In fact, uh, one visitor from Costa Rancho Mission spoke such fluent Zulu. I had some of the patients say, who's that friend of yours? He speaks better Zulu than we do. In fact, said he doesn't speak Zulu like a white man. He speaks Zulu like he is a Zulu. I said, well, He is a white Zulu. He comes from Quetzalcoatl Mission and Zuland, and they were astounded to hear more about what's going on at that work of grace. And um, yeah, no, I mean, there's no doubt that any ministry you do in, in a ward like that, almost everyone can hear what's going on. Did the staff? Did the staff? The, the hospital staff see the anointing? The yes, they did, and and there was definitely um, questions being asked, and some of the nursing staff identified themselves as Christians. Uh, others might have been a little bit uh, intimidated by it, but it just shows we should be getting into hospitals. And this is the terrible thing about the lockdown lunacy is how many people were forbidden to visit. And patients need family. And the amount of people who were sick in hospital and even dying without their family around, that was very cruel and callous. The WHO protocols during the COVID cult was very destructive, and you think of the amount of people in old age homes who are denied visits. Hospital visitation is a very important thing that Christians should do. Our Lord in Matthew 25 says, you know, I was sick and you visited me. And uh, whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. And so visiting the sick, caring for the poor, prison ministry, um, these are things are, in Matthew 25, is an important part of what the Lord's calling us to do. And my wife did a lot of hospital visitation under reach for recovery when she was battling cancer. And you can imagine how terrible it was during the lockdown lunacy that they were stopping people visiting hospital wards and the reach for recovery of visiting cancer patients suddenly came to a halt during that whole lockdown. Tremendous damage was done and that's why we've got to get back into it. And I think many churches have, have uh, stopped doing things like prison ministry and hospital visitation, because of the lockdown, they need to get restarted again. It's possible again, but it's not just possible, it's urgent, it's needed, and it's appreciated. You sent some trainee missionaries to uh, Somerset Hospital recently. We did, that's part of our Great Commission course, and they all appreciate it, and it is, it is a very good, viable thing. We've sometimes gone, just before Christmas, up to Red Cross Children's Hospital and visited the ward and found especially Christmas Eve and taking fluffy animals and, and uh, coloring in books and different children's picture Bibles. And um, you can imagine anyone is stuck there over Christmas Eve, that's pretty rough. So that, that was a wonderful time when we found everyone was open, the nurses, the patients. There was no uh, problem getting in, no problem going from bed to bed, praying with the people. And uh, where appropriate that to have you sing as well. I mean, if you've got a, a singing ministry in your church and you go and you take a group to sing in a, a ward, especially any children's ward, it's going to be very much appreciated. What advice were you given to manage your condition, Dr. Hammond? Well, I said, 
keep uh, keep away from salt. Don't add salt to your food if you don't need to. Uh, avoid processed salt-type foods. Have lots of fruit and vegetables. Fruit and vegetables are very good and helpful. And um, to, well, not that I would um, be getting into alcohol, um, never touch the stuff, but they said to drink alcohol in moderation. So if anyone, if that's a factor in their life, cutting down it will help. Definitely the hard liquor is particularly bad. And the smoking, of course, would be very bad. I mean, that clots your veins anyway. So, uh, but they gave me some actual verbal exercise, which includes reading aloud and um, physical exercise of balance, in particular, one foot in front of the other, different things of coordinating your fingers and uh, doing different. So I was, I was even advised to get these stress balls to, with your hand, to get the hand movements right again with the left and right hand eye started to do these regular exercises with a stress ball, especially my left hand, and uh, which is the one most affected. So there are some good exercises you can do, but all exercises are, are good in general. They, they're proved of, I said, you know, any problem with, every day I do press-ups, sit-ups, and some weight training, and there's no carry on with that, but also add these more, fine motor coordination type of exercises. You know, in the case of strokes, it's use it or lose it. If you're not using those muscles, you're going to lose them. And so testing, and I think that's true in spiritual gifts, and it's good in so much of life, use it or lose it. If we don't appreciate what we've got and use it, we will probably lose it. And so if you've just lost uh, some coordination because of a stroke, it's so important to rebuild. And so it's, it's like part of the building's been broken down, and now you've got to rebuild scaffolding or bricks or whatever it is and so rebuilding those muscles and the memory and which includes they gave some tongue exercises some tongue twisters um you know like the rain in spain falls mainly on the plane she sells seashells on a seashore but there's there's different verbal ones you can do that exercise your tongue and to try and of course you want to get your foot and your your left hand moving if that's what sides of affected like in my case but um, exercising your brain, exercising your, your mind, your heart, your tongue, uh, all of these things help to bring about recoveries because the, the quicker and the sooner and the more vigorously we uh, exercise those muscles, the quicker they'll come back to health. And uh, rest and sleep, is that...? Uh, well, they, they advise lots of rest and sleep. Yeah. Funny thing is they put you in ICU and say get lots of rest, but you can't sleep in ICU because there's no end of monitors going off and alarm buttons and calls and noise through the night and then of course there's some people who snore and there's other people who make other noises through the night and and then you get some nurses who talk so loud that you can't sleep you can't even hear yourself think because they like shouting across the room but maybe it's a normal conversation to them so um even there they say you must rest but they don't really give you a chance to you can't really rest in icu not if you're a light sleeper like i am so um then I suppose that's just you You go home where you can rest, but when you get home, there's a whole lot of things that have to be done there too. So rest isn't as easy as many people say. And for some people, it doesn't come that naturally anyway. But I'm sure that's an important ingredient in recovering. Yeah. And in ICU, you mentioned you had your Bible, so you could do reading. Oh, yes. No, I was doing, doing quite a lot of reading. Having a good book and having a Bible in hospital is vital. Redeem the time. 
mean, that's the first thing you don't want your brain to go. And uh, of course, they'll they'll stick a TV set in front of you and, and give you a control console, but who wants brainwashing from some mindless garbage? But uh, being forced to see some of the TVs that's in the hospital wards just reminds you that you're missing nothing. It's it's really a brain-numbing garbage, yeah, either distraction or just trash. But even when it's not that bad, it's a waste of time. Yeah, I'm surprised they would actually allow that where people are recovering from strokes and so on, because, I mean, that's enough to trigger... I mean, <laughs> Some of it is, yes. But unfortunately, they put these TV sets all over the place, just in the, in the ceiling above you, slightly lowered. They put a control console next to you. So it's better to have something meaningful to do, like a real book. Yeah, so, so once you were discharged from hospital, you had some plans... For, Prior yes. to the stroke for, for that coming week, and now yes, what happened? Well, last, last week was the ministers' conference at Kwasavansa Mission. Now, this is the biggest ministers' conference I know of anywhere in Africa. Every two years at Kwasavansa Mission in KwaZulu, there's a ministers' conference. The last one was just before the lockdown, 2019. And so this year, it was the first one for four years. It's actually the 40th ministers' conference that was held. And uh, I haven't missed many of them. I think I've been to all in bar two over the years. So I was invited to be a speaker there, so I had every intention of going. When I mentioned this to doctors and to the speech therapists, they said, cancel all your plans, you're not going anywhere. You've had a stroke. So that's sort of roughly what my family said. So um, I still didn't want to give up on it because it's something I'd been planning for for a long time and had a very clear message that I had to give at this conference in accordance with the theme. So on Monday... This last week, Monday, I flew in to Durban and uh, was well received. And although they were hesitant and sceptical that I'd be well enough, the medical doctor there and nurses would check me out. And they even came in that Tuesday morning to check, are you well enough and take my blood pressure and all that. And uh, But I went ahead. And in fact, one of the Zulu co-workers said when I arrived, when we heard you had a stroke, we thought, Satan doesn't want Peter Hammond to speak at the minister's conference. So they were praying for me, and when I got there, they were very happy to see I was there, but I don't think they thought that I'd necessarily end up speaking. So on the Tuesday last week, I did manage to give my message, the worship of true repentance, which was under the main theme of So Send Are You, and uh, it was a blessed time, and my main concern was that I wouldn't be slurring because I could feel that my speech been a bit affected by all this and uh, everything went well and I had good responses many and some said I'd never have known that you'd had a stroke if I didn't if I hadn't heard it because there's no sign in your in your voice that would have indicated to me if I didn't know and so there was generally a lot of good response and uh, I really felt made to answer to prayer because a week before I've been told forget it not going to happen no way I mean, even that morning I had some saying, perhaps you should just rest today. And I uh, thought, no, duty first. I've been called here. There's an opportunity. And God answered that prayer for healing on that first Tuesday night. Anthony prayed and others. So um, I just can only praise God. This is praying in answer to prayer from James 5. The prayer of faith, which we don't do enough. What did you learn at the Minister's Conference in general? Well, there were so many great 
emphases and uh, the last evening the message from Uncle Ulla, Ulla Stegen was from Judges 7 and speaking about Joshua, I mean Gideon and his 300, that when he had 32,000, that's just too many. And he said, sometimes we think we don't have enough workers, we need more workers. But he said, in fact, the problem is often if you've got too many of the wrong people. And that uh, sometimes you'll strengthen the campaign by, by thinning the ranks. And you don't want those who are fearful, you don't want those who are not faithful, reliable, dependable. And that, um, in fact, with Gideon, God said, you've got too many, send some of them away. And he had a test to find those that God had chosen to be part of the war against the Malachites. And that we need to be some of those faithful, um, courageous, bold ones willing to do what God wants done. And um, one very interesting report back we got from Michael Swain of Four SA, Freedom of Religion SA, pointing out that after speaking about a whole lot of the threats against our religious freedom worldwide. You know, in Britain, a woman was arrested for praying silently on the other side of the street from an abortion clinic. Now, she wasn't wearing any pro-life T-shirt. She wasn't holding a banner or flag. She was just praying silently on the other side of the street. And the police came up and said, are you praying? And she said, why do you ask? And they said, well, there's a no-pray zone. No prayer zone, that's an abortion clinic over there. You're not allowed to pray here. Can you believe Great Britain? No prayer zones. And she wasn't praying aloud. But they said, what are you praying about? And she said, does it matter? And I said, yes. And anyway, they ended up arresting her for silently praying on the other side of the street from the abortion clinic. In Canada, they've had people arrested, pastor arrested, for example, for going in and asking some questions at a drag Queen reading for children at a, at a library. And uh, although he was assaulted, they didn't arrest the people who assaulted him, they arrested the man who was assaulted and uh, charged him with public nuisance, whatever that means. And uh, there have been people locked up for some pretty obscure things in Australia, Britain, Canada. And then they point out there's something very insidious coming here to South Africa, it's called Early Child Development, ECD Toolkit. The United Nations has been busy producing an, um, what they call an Early Childhood Development Toolkit to orientate and conscientize them for LGBTQ, transgenderism and all that. Basically, how to take preschoolers and use them as guinea pigs in a social experiment, try and teach them there's no genders, there can be 70 genders or whatever, and you could be another gender. And so and you can change your gender, and this is all being readied for 4,000 teachers in KwaZulu-Natal were used as an experiment in this, and they bring it to schools without checking with the parents and uh, without running through parliament. They're just saying, well, this is a private initiative funded by groups overseas who've put a few, mil a few hundred million into this to come and do guinea pig social engineering uh, with our children in South African preschools for transgenderism and LGBTQ agenda. So he is warning us that we need to be aware this is coming. And as parents, we need to be very vigilant. And if you're not on a school governing body of a school where your child is, you should get onto the school governing body. And don't miss the opportunity to speak out and vote and be involved in the 
parents teach associations, of course, if you're homeschooling, that's even better. But if your child is in a school, you need to get yourself on a school governing body or vote on someone who's knowledgeable and courageous to watch out for the best interest in your child because there are major well-funded groups out there determined to alter your child's perception about things as basic as gender and, of course, God and reality and right and wrong. So that was one of the warnings that came from it. I found the Minister's Conference tremendous in so many ways. Met a lot of friends and uh, people I haven't seen for years, people from Germany and from Romania and all over the world. Uh, we even had some missionaries from South America. Um, our missionary to the Congo, Jan, was there. It was good to catch up with him and do planning for the Congo River mission. And there's 14 million people living in and around the Congo River Basin on the River One tributaries who can only be reached from the riverside using boat ministries and so on. So it's a very strategic work. And uh, other people, I had a person come up to me saying, you gave me this book, Putting Feet to Your Faith, years ago at a previous minister's conference. I've planted a church in Namibia since using this. And uh, we mentioned just read a lot of Bibles in different indigenous languages. And I've donated an Old Testament survey book to every pastor, missionary, chaplain, evangelist there, and uh, to the co-workers, and New Testament surveys to quite a lot of them too. So that that was well appreciated. And um, I met people who'd heard me in the army, and people who came and said, uh, you know, you ministered and changed the life of my brother or cousin and things like that. And I must say it was such an experience to be with so many Christian leaders from so many parts of the world, some of whom we've known for many years. And so um, that's just super encouraging and challenging. We've got phenomenal choirs. And uh, what's also interesting is how the school children uh, during the time of the minister's conference are involved in doing the serving and catering and so on at the, uh, for the meals. And you can imagine the logistics. You've got over 2,000 delegates at a conference and there are three meals a day to be served. And, uh, teas in between and so on and so the school children were the ones doing that and that's such good training and practical application the logistics is phenomenal you can imagine to host so many people and what's also amazing is Quest of Mission never takes up an offering never even charges people for the food and accommodation at the conferences now they can only do this because they've got a very effective farm which is providing a working sustainable model of funding their work in the conferences and seminars and outreaches. So that they don't need to charge, but they can freely, freely give and freely receive, which is quite a model to others. When you think some places it's all about money in some conferences, well, here that wasn't even mentioned. It didn't come up at all. And uh, if anything, we were giving so much away free, like books and Bibles and so on. And... Uh, so Quest of Mission is amazing. It's a place that's really helped people for many, many years. And the revival began in 1966, and Ulla has been ministering and preaching for over 70 years in Zulu. But now, he said in the past, before the revival, they went out to the people. But since 1966, the people come to them. And that's what revival often is. You don't have to go to the heathen. They come to you asking, how can we be saved? And uh, can the Lord save me? You meet so many people who have been converted from witchcraft or lives of theft and stealing or crime and 
being politicians and so on. Well, it's like repeating yourself. But um, uh, amazing amounts of testimonies of grace. So what an experience. Yeah, Dr. Hammond, it, sounds, it sounded possibly like the, the ideal way for you to begin your recovery, being surrounded mm. by positive Christians, yes. old friends, uh, an opportunity to rest. You only had to speak once, so that gave you an opportunity to, mm. to begin your recovery. Yes, and such inspiring songs. In fact, if a person goes on to ksb.org.za website, you can see some of the hymns and watch some of the presentations. Got videos then, phenomenal pictures. They've got a radio station of broadcast in German, in Zulu, in English and Afrikaans, 25 hours a day, and uh, one of the biggest Christian radio stations in the country. And... Uh, That's just one of their ministries. They've got a phenomenal teacher training college and school that often wins top awards. So it's really an example of excellence in many ways. As far as hospitality goes, I don't know anywhere that does it better. It's they, They're really an example of excellence. Yeah, we give thanks for Kwasisi Bantu's friendship. Uh, Dr. Hammond, you've had a extremely rich and colorful career. You've you've seen every aspect and facet of life. But what have you learned from this this experience? Well, we always need to live in the light of eternity. There's an appointment not one of us will miss. In Hebrews 9.27, read, it says, appointed unto man wants to die and after that to face judgment. So that's an appointment not one of us will even be able to be late for. And uh, we don't know when our day or hour is, but we need to be ready. And um, I'm not afraid to die. I've, I've been writing my will since I was 19. First thing I had to do when I went to South African Infantry was write out my will, which is a very sobering thing. But um, many times before, many a mission across the board, and I've done about 140 missions behind enemy lines over the years, 40 years in missions, 38 countries I've worked in, eight wars I've been involved in. And uh, to know that you could die at a moment's notice through a landmine, rocket, bombs, bullets, strafing, aerial bombardments, rockets. I mean, that's reality. And many a time I thought, this is my last day and I'm not going to live to see the sunrise. And I've been imprisoned and captured and ambushed and bombed and rocketed, strafed and artillery barrages and so on. So over the years, I thought that I would probably die in the field. You don't expect to die from a stroke lying on the floor in your bathroom. So, you know, but... It's not just when you're in so-called dangerous areas that you're at risk. The Lord could come or call at a moment's notice. So I think that it's always good for us to remind ourselves. Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a wedding or a party because death waits for us all. And and the living should remind themselves that death waits for us all. So that's in Ecclesiastes. It is valuable for us to remind ourselves we are finite. Life is fragile. You don't know how long you've got. Make Make every day count. And make sure you are right with God and with friends and family around you. So, um, while I'm not afraid to die, I do not want to finish here without having completed what God's given me to do. You don't want to leave uncompleted assignments and projects behind. You want to be up to date and um, be sure that you're leaving the world better than you found it and everything in order. At HCF, we used to be woken up sometimes in the middle of the night front scrum and say, your desk is untidy. What if the Lord returned tonight? And uh, that kind of idea that everything must be in good order. Well, 
I think that's good and uh, it does no harm to be reminded of that fact. Um, all of us would benefit from saying, what would I do differently in the next week or two if I knew I only had another month or week to live? And what would you do differently next hour if you knew you only had another hour and so on? It does no harm to make every, not just every day, but every hour count. So I think that just reiterates that. I've been on the other side many a time in hospital as the visitor, the chaplain, the one praying by the bedside and reading scriptures, someone else is sick. But you have the experience of lying on a hospital bed like my wife and my parents had to do on how many occasions. Uh, gives you a whole different perspective and you you also realize how important it is that we all get back into hospital ministry. Thank you, Dr. Hammond. Um, I think I can speak on behalf of um, all my colleagues at Frontline and uh, listeners and readers of your work and say that we are grateful that the Lord has given you a second lease on life so that you can continue to inspire us and to preach the truth. Um, in closing, I'd like to read from James uh, 5, 14 to 16. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And that is the very passage that Anthony Stunder read before anointing with oil and praying for me in the ICU uh, Tuesday, two weeks ago. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Front Line. God bless and good night.